Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, join me again in Peter's second letter, chapter 1 today, or the text for today, uh, or for the whole series actually, is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises that so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for the Spirit's work, Lord, in our hearts as we hear it. In Jesus' good name, amen. I think one of the more awesome features of our world oceans is the oceanic shelf. Maybe you've seen this from some of the crazy footage now from deep sea dive apparatus. You know, you're moving through basically pretty familiar water with predictable depth. And then just all of a sudden, the bottom just drops away into an abyss that could literally swallow a a continent. It's It's just kind of awesome when you see it. And to me, the Advent story of God becoming man is kind of like that. You know, it's all so familiar. We sit by the fake manger and we sing Silent Night and we have these sweet sentiments and all this. Christmas, yay. But then do you ever have these moments when you're just kind of going through the motions of this very familiar thing and all of a sudden you're just like, wait a minute. (laughs) What is this? God became man. What are the implications of that, and the bottom just kind of falls away, and you're just in a whole other dimension. And I think Peter, in this text, kind of propels us off an oceanic shelf, because he says something that just is hard to kind of even absorb, as if it were not deep enough that God took our human nature. As if that weren't deep enough, Peter says he did that so we could share his divine nature. Now, that's just crazy to think about. God took human nature with the goal that you and I would share, partake in the divine nature, not literally becoming God, obviously, but once again, really, truly being his image in the world. As Herman Bobbink puts it, being miniatures of God in our character and in our work in the world. Last week, I gave you verses three and four of this text in what I call pastoral English. So, I don't know, when you're reading through your Bible, sometimes it's kind of, you know, easy to tune it out. So this is verses 3 and 4 in Ben Miller pastoral English for what what it's worth. Peter says this. He says, God's power has given you everything you need to live and be like him. How? Well, through knowing him, 
the one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son. And in that display of his excellence, he made awesome promises that you will share it because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So even as you believe his promises, get busy adding excellence to your faith. God's power has given you everything you need to live and be like him. How? Through knowing him, the one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son. And in that display of his excellence, he made awesome promises that you will share it because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So even as you believe his promises, get busy adding excellence to your faith. God revealed his excellence to us with the promise we will share that excellence. And we know this well. Through his son, he called us out of the ruins of sin to be his own, to be his children, to be heirs of his kingdom. Just crazy to think about. But I love the fact that Peter says God, in doing that, treats us not as robots that he just kind of programs or winds up. He treats us as the active agents that we are. Even as we are always in a position of receiving all that God has given to us, totally dependent upon him, receiving all of this wonderful stuff just by grace, and that's why Peter says, start with faith. Just receive what God has given to you. But even as we receive by faith, he says, you are, God wants you to act on what you have received. He wants you to add to your faith moral excellence. Well, what's moral excellence? Well, Peter goes on to spell it out. It's everything from knowledge to self-control to steadfastness to godliness to brotherly affection to love. The whole thing is, is moral excellence. But today what I want to just talk about for a few minutes is these two, these two qualities of knowledge and self-control. Right after moral excellence, I just want to talk briefly about why knowledge and self-control are essential to moral excellence. They're, they're very basic to it and how we add them. Okay, So I want to talk a little bit about furnished minds and disciplined impulses. Let's just talk about, first of all, about furnished minds. Add to your faith, moral excellence. Add to your moral excellence, knowledge. Now, it is very interesting that Peter puts knowledge after moral excellence. And let's remember from last week some things, that just some, very quickly, some things that we noted about moral excellence. Moral excellence is not, if you think of moral excellence in terms of a journey, it is not, did, was this the right turn or that the right turn? It's not, did I follow that rule or did I break that rule? You can't think about moral excellence that way. Moral excellence is less about just the individual turns in the road, and it's more about what's your destination. Now, are you actually heading toward that destination? Moral excellence, if you think about people who are, you know, don't just, not just rule followers, but they're morally excellent people, there is an alignment. There's an alignment of my whole self. Within myself and in my relationships, I'm aligned toward what I am meant to be. That's way bigger than following rules. It's an alignment of my inner life and my relationships toward a goodness that I am meant to be. It's the ordering of my desires and my actions toward a goodness that fulfills my very being. It's actually what I'm supposed to become. I am most myself when I become that. And it's an ordering of myself toward that. That's moral excellence. And we just need to be completely unapologetic about that in the modern world. 
Because there's this nonsense that people talk about, like there's really, nobody can decide for you what is good, what is excellent. That is completely up to you. And it really doesn't even matter because there's no real, ultimately there's no, nothing, like the cosmos doesn't care whether you're this or that. So there's really no such thing as actual moral excellence. You just kind of figure out what works for you and do it. I mean, if you and I, if there's actually no destination we are to reach as human beings, if we are not meant to be anything, if I can never say to you, you should not be that, you should be that. If we're actually going to carry it through, that there's no difference between one person ending up as a narcissist and another person ending up as someone who's deeply empathetic. You know, you do you. There's no actual difference between ending up as a greedy person or ending up as a generous person because there's no way people are really supposed to be. If we're really going to carry that through, then excellence, the whole idea of moral excellence, is just meaningless. And really all the whole idea of human ethics is meaningless. But in biblical terms, obviously, that's just, it's nonsense. We are meant, we have a destination. We are meant to image the goodness, the excellence of God himself. Now that's related to knowledge in two ways. Still talking about furnished minds. So thinking about moral excellence is that kind of alignment of myself toward the goodness that I'm meant to be. That relates to knowledge in two ways. Number one, moral excellence requires a process of learning, doesn't it? So I'm going to align myself toward the goodness I'm meant to be. I'm obviously, as I do that, trying to align myself, I'm beginning a process of learning. And that's knowledge. Can I ask those of you in the room today who are under 25, is it possible to lose your way in life? Is it possible to wake up in 30 years and realize this is not who I should be? This is not where I should be. Is that possible? I mean, the older people in the room would have a lot to say about that. But what do you guys think? You're, you're younger. Do you think it is possible for you in 20, 30 years to realize this is not at all where I should be? This is not at all who I should be? I think those of you who are thinkers would say, of course, it's possible. And I'd like you to notice that little word, should. This is not who I should be. This is not where I should be. Even if you actually believe that the only should in your life is that you should be completely true to your own deepest feelings. The only thing in the entire world you should be is what you most deeply feel you should be. Notice you still have a should. And what I'd like to ask you is this. Where did you learn that should? Who told you that should? Who said you should be true to your deepest feelings? Or should be whatever else you think you should be? Why shouldn't you be X? Why shouldn't you end up at this or that place? Where did you get that, where did you learn that should? Because we've all learned our shoulds. And those shoulds need to be regularly interrogated by us. And very often you realize, I've got the wrong should. I need to revise the should. Because it is possible to be quite on track about what the good life is. I mean, you really have a sensible and a right understanding of what the good life is. And you're kind of on track in what you know about the good life. And it's also obviously possible to be dreadfully wrong uh, in, in, in how you envision the good life. And it is possible for someone to skillfully guide you in a better understanding of what the good life really is. And it's also possible for people to terribly mislead you about what the good life is, about what excellence is, about what you are meant to be. 
And so immediately you can see that moral excellence, this aligning of ourselves with what we're meant to be, it demands, it demands an intense process of learning. Both hearing with my ears what other people have to say about this so I am not blindfolded by my own stupidity. That's part of the learning, is listening well to what other people say about it, but also not just being a gullible sheep. I'm also thinking deeply about what it is that I'm meant to be so I'm not led astray by, you know, slick talkers about this. It's, it's a learning process in which I am, on one hand, pondering the path of my own feet. What am I meant to be? Where should I end up? What kind of a person? I mean, I hear people say all the time, what do you want to look in the mirror and see in 20 years? Like, that's an excellent question. That's a moral excellence question. And I have to think about that and ponder that for myself. But I also need to pay attention to people who know the way and have walked the way and whose lives I admire for their moral excellence. The biblical term for what I'm describing, this learning process, is called wisdom. Wisdom is neither recklessly self-confident, you know, just everyone else's opinions, you know, can jump off a bridge, I've got it. It's not recklessly self-confident, but it's also not gullible. You're just looking for a guru, tell me what to think. And ultimately, I think it's what Paul has in mind, this learning process, when he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. It's a learning process. So that's one way that moral excellence is related to knowledge. It moral excellence requires a process of learning. And you can see that by God's design then, adding knowledge to your moral excellence is a deeply social thing. It's an orientation of my own mind toward what's good, and I'm thinking about that a lot. I'm really thinking about that. But it is also apprenticing myself to other people in whom I perceive true Excellence. I have a phrase I've started using with young people. Find the sages. They are out there. If you don't have a sage in your life, find the sage and talk to the sage. Because what we receive from masters, and there are masters who have made tremendous progress in moral excellence, what we learn from these masters is not just data. It, you know, you can't get it out of a book often. It's not just information that we need. I'm really wanting to walk alongside a sage, a master in moral excellence because I want to learn some life ways, some life ways, a certain shape of life. L I was recently on the phone for over an hour with a young man, and we were just talking the entire time about what it means to be a man, a manly man who is neither a Chad nor a mousy Mr. Nice Guy. And we realized as we were talking, it'd be nice if there was a book that could tell you how to do this, but you've got to walk with some manly men to figure this out. What it means to walk with a guy who really, I mean, he's a man's man, but he's not a Chad, and he's certainly not a mouse. But you've got to walk with the sages. And this is true across the board of moral excellence. It's a social thing. Moral excellence requires a process of learning. But there's another thing. Why, another way that moral excellence is related to knowledge, and that is that moral excellence provides the values for knowledge. This vision of moral excellence provides the values for knowledge. What do I mean? Well, this is what I mean. Uh, you, you have a very short life to live toward what you're meant to be. It'll be over quickly. You only have so much time in your short life to live toward what you're meant to be. And so if you are living in an age that is as information-saturated as ours, as data-soaked as the 21st century is, you are going to have to be selective in your knowledge. Selective in what you absorb. What is worth knowing? And what is worth doing with what you know? 
Well, you need moral excellence to answer those questions, don't you? What I ought to be starts to tell me what I ought to know. What I ought to be starts to tell me what I ought to do with the knowledge that I acquire. How do you discern what is totally not worth knowing? What is just an absolute waste of your time? How do you discern that? How do you discern when you are acquiring a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge, you're getting very powerful with that knowledge, but that is becoming for you a highway to hell because of the uses for to which you're putting your knowledge. Well, without a moral vision to tell us that's worth knowing, I think that we are left as God's people to fall prey, maybe not intentionally, but to fall prey. If we don't have a moral vision of what is worth knowing in this short life I have under the sun because of that vision of excellence, if I don't have that, I'm easily... I easily fall prey to, I think, two very sickly value systems you'll recognize immediately in our modern world. And one is a value system for knowledge that just really boils down to gratification. If it feels good, fill your mind with it. If it feels good, and this is like a lot of our society now, if it feels good, then fill your mind with it. And we are very quickly becoming a society where many people are so glutted, they are so glutted on the intellectual equivalent of Kool-Aid and Jolly Ranchers that they are disabled for deep attention to things that form you toward goodness. We don't even have the attention anymore because we're so full of Kit Kats intellectually. If it feels good, suck it down in weeks of your life devoted to stuff. How do you know it's actually worth knowing? Well, you don't without a moral vision. So the gratification system of value is one thing you see a lot, and the other is kind of a monetization value system for knowledge. For a lot of people, if it helps me pass a test, get a degree, get a job and earn money, then it's worth knowing, fill your mind with it. Otherwise, what is the point? Why would I care? Why does it matter? And it's actually somewhat sobering when you talk to maybe a young person today and you realize unless it immediately helps in the process of getting ready to make a lot of money so they can have the lifestyle they want, they literally do not think it is worth devoting any mental time to, any in, uh, giving any interest to. And that's why the moral vision of excellence matters so much. But it isn't just that we need a moral vision from God in order to know what is worth knowing. If we do not have a moral vision to tell us what's worth doing with our knowledge, then we are left with something that I think is very characteristic of the modern world, and that is we know how, so why not? If you don't have a moral vision that tells you what is worth doing with your knowledge, then you're left with we know how, why not? And the possible becomes the measure of the good. And so we find ourselves now in a society where we have literally, by, by an exponential figure, we have unprecedented technical mastery of the world. We have knowledge now that would have just blown the minds of our ancestors. We have so much technical knowledge and mastery of the world, but without a guiding standard of moral excellence, you can see very quickly this can this can just have frightening implications. And you can see, as you look at some things that are happening in our world now, how necessary is that great precept of moral excellence, which is love the Lord your God with all of your mind. What is worth knowing? What is worth doing with what you know? Love the Lord your God. That is moral excellence. So furnished minds, I'll come back in a moment to one thing I'll suggest to help us put that on, add that. But moral excellence, of course, is not just a mental exercise. It also requires self-control. 
So furnish minds, add to your excellence knowledge, but then also self-control. Let's talk for a moment about disciplined impulses. You talk to anyone who has seriously pursued moral excellence, they will say to you, you know, if only all we needed to add were knowledge. If only you could just pick up a book <laughs> to become what you ought to be. If only it were so simple. Because there is in every one of us in this room today and in every human being you meet, there are two things that not only go bad if you don't have knowledge. In other words, the more ignorant you are, the more likely these two things will go bad. But unfortunately, they go bad despite knowledge that you have. And those two things are your wants and your feelings. You ever find yourself wanting what you know is bad? You ever find yourself not wanting what you know is good? Do you ever find your feelings are just running in all kinds of directions that your better judgment does not approve of at all? You know, Jonathan Haidt's idea of the rider and the elephant. You feel like your elephant of your kind of desires and passions and, and feelings are just kind of running all over the place. And, you know, if you could just get your mind back on top of that elephant, you could actually drive the thing. But how many of you have ever blown your top, screamed a bunch of stuff, 10 minutes later your rider catches up with your elephant, and you're like, what did I just do? Well, that's, those are feelings. Those are wants, passions, desires, they're there. And I've talked to you guys before about Matthew Lapine's really helpful idea because, uh, well, think about, think about these desires for, for a moment before we get there, the desires and, and, and wants and, and feelings. I mean, you, one thing we must acknowledge about these is that God made us to, to want. He made us to desire. I mean, at the most basic level, he made us to desire things we need to survive, like food, but he also made us to desire things we need to thrive, like love and friendship and connection. He made us with wants, and he made us with feelings. There is nothing inherently sinful about love or hate or joy or sorrow or hope or fear or anger. Every one of these has a place. God made these feelings, but I'd like you to think as we remember something that Matthew Lapine, we've talked about it before. Notice how both the Bible, you think about your desires and your feelings, both the Bible and experience will show us that these wants and desires and feelings are really rooted in the body. You ever notice that? They're, they're, they're like physical. They're not just purely mental. It's interesting that the psalmist even says, my soul thirsts for you, O God. Like he describes even his desire for God as like thirst for water. And Paul speaks about compassion, the feeling of compassion as bowels of compassion. Like that thing that happens in your gut when you just want to weep for somebody, it's a physical feeling. Any of you guys ever felt anxiety in your body? You know, if only you could just think your way out of anxiety. Oh, I just have different ideas now, I'm fine. No, it's rooted in your body too. And how about anger? There's a reason why they say, untighten your chest, unclench your jaw, count to 10, you got to calm your body down. They're rooted in the body. And it is here in the body that these wants and these feelings become habituated until you get to a place where these wants and feelings will spring into action way ahead of your conscious mind. The elephant's just off and running. And that's where Lapine's idea of the plasticity of the body. It's moldable like plastic. The body is. Uh, he, he describes how sin you know, our rebellion against God, our disinclination toward God and his goodness. Lapine says it engraves itself into your habitual bodily impulses of desire and emotion. That's why Peter says here in verse 4, God has saved us. We have escaped from the corruption in the world because of sinful 
desires, sinful impulses, sinful emotions, where sin has engraved itself onto our very bodily impulses, our very bodily habits, our very bodily wants and feelings. And we all know what this is like. You know, like I just said, you, you ever explode in rage before you even realize it's happening? Like you're, you know, you're just losing it before you even sort of like think it through? Any of us ever experienced being sucked into pornography as if you are powerless to resist, like you almost physically cannot stop? That's sin engraving itself on the plasticity of your body. Those of us who are ruled every single morning of our lives, first thing in the day by the allure of our phone, never a thought for prayer, but the phone has got you as soon as you open your eyes. That is something engraved on your bodily habits. Those of us who, the first flicker of pain and discomfort in our lives, there's this grumbling that springs out of us. It's sin engraving itself on our physical habits of wanting and feeling. And that's part of why you will notice that we are most vulnerable to, Peter calls them, sinful passions, sinful wants and feelings when our bodies are weak. You know, it's harder to be, harder to pursue moral excellence when you're exhausted, when you're hungry, when you're in acute or chronic pain, when, you're t- when you've been traumatized, when you're under severe strain. Your body is weaker, and so there's more possibility that sins engraving work on your desires and feelings is going to burst forth in sinful passions that's that's how the body works and so when we think about moral excellence if only we could just read a book and just add knowledge no moral excellence requires tending our bodies in order over time to guide and align and train and in some cases brothers and sisters just flat out rule our wants and feelings present your bodies as a living sacrifice to god which is your reasonable act of worship. And train your bodies toward excellence. Sometimes it means you need to nourish your body. Sometimes the best thing you can do in order to pursue moral excellence is you need to add some food. You need to get some sleep. You need to turn on some music. You need to have other things maybe that calm your body or exercise your body. That's not like out there and Pursuing excellence is over here. Add moral excellence through adding knowledge and self-control. You're going to have to take care of your body, nourish your body. But it also means training your body and your mind through forced alternative habits. It is possible to learn to slow your anger down. That's called self-control. It takes enormous effort. It takes training. You will not get there overnight, but you can do it. You can, you can never again look at porn. It is possible. You can retrain your brain circuitry. You can learn how to calm anxiety. I'm not saying you can eliminate it. Our bodies are weak. But you can learn how to get something of a measure of self-control over that thing that just has your heart pounding and you're just racing and you're you're, you're just emotionally out of control. You can redirect addictive impulses. You can. We can structure our routines and our lives until our bodies actually begin to desire and feel, and they will eventually, because the plasticity of the body works both ways, eventually your body can begin to desire and to feel toward what is good. You know, worship is a perfect example of this. How many of you on a Sunday feel like getting up and going to worship? But you do it. And over time, how many of you would say, there's nowhere else I'd rather be? 
I could find so many more fun things to do on a Sunday, but I want to be here because I have trained my body through just showing up. Just show up. Don't s- allow yourself to go get something, do something else that feels better. Just keep yourself in that groove, and eventually you'll find, you know what, I don't want to be any place in the world except right here, worshiping God with my brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day. That's the plasticity of the body moving now towards moral excellence. And Lapine says this. He says the plasticity of the body can also contribute to sanctification, becoming morally excellent. The Holy Spirit inaugurates and enables a renewal of our embodied existence such that our renewed mind by the hearing of faith, ears toward God, saturates our embodied practice by the Spirit's power. And so here I'm going to wrap up with this. I want to give you guys a couple of things. You take these or leave these. Here are two things that we could do in the next three or four months to add knowledge and to add self-control. These are practical directions for beloved children of God. He loves you. You are in Christ and these are a couple things you could do to do what your father says, which is now add to your faith, moral excellence, including knowledge and self-control. On the knowledge front, I'll say this. I find that Christians who are growing are very often Christians who are reading. I've got a book list I prepared this week, and it's got some great stuff on it that will help you grow. If you read these books, you will experience a measure of spiritual growth. But I will tell you this. I'll email it to anybody who asks. Don't email me unless you promise me and I will demand this promise up front that you are going to read something on this list. Because if you won't read, no list for you. Okay? That's it. But you want to grow this coming year? Add knowledge. I'll give you a book list. And they're, they're easy to, they're not like hard books. But don't email me if you're, not, if you're not committed. Add knowledge. That's one thing. Just pick up something that is spiritually edifying and read it. Now on the self-control thing, how do you actually add self-control? Can I encourage you take, please, some time with this. I know it's hard in a busy life, but you're, you're becoming like God. You're sharing in the divine nature. One thing, find one thing in your life, one thing that you know is not morally excellent. Some way you speak, some way you act, something you want, something you feel, and you know it's not like Jesus. You know it's not how you're meant to be. It's not how you should be, and you know it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the grace of God received by faith, I want to ask you, what is a life routine Something you do with your body probably every day. What is one life routine that you could do with your body that would help you start to change that thing that's not like Jesus? So you've got to identify what is the thing that's not like Jesus. Then what is one life routine that you could do with your body that would help you begin to change that? And here's my more pointed question. How between now and April 1st, just to help you all not sit on this, give yourself the first quarter of the year, how between now and April 1st do you plan to implement that new routine. And you know what I guarantee you? This is just straight up following Jesus. You work on this for the first three months of 2023 and you will find your routine has changed. So whatever that is, it will start to change. You will start to add moral excellence because you've added self-control. This is just the life of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And I think we need to be very honest that in the 21st century, if we are not prepared to do this kind of thing as Christians, we should just admit that we're all talk. Yes? Pursue moral excellence because you're loved by God. Father, give us grace to to add knowledge and to add self-control and to glorify you in this world in the short time you've given us. In Jesus we pray, amen.